Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. And before we look at this, let me pray for us briefly that God would add his blessing to his word. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have, before the foundation of the world, ordained all that would come to pass. And we thank you that you have ordained a redeemer who would come into this world in the fullness of time. We thank you that you have given your son to us. We thank you that you have given us a sure and clear word about your son. We thank you that in ages past you spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days you have spoken to us by your son. We pray, our God, that you would make us attentive to every word that you have breathed out. And especially to that portion that we look at now, we pray that you would add your blessing most fully to the preaching of your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1, here Isaiah, the great prophet of Israel, prophesying in about the 8th century B.C., writes, Now to the old covenant people, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, just this past week, it was noted that there were two uh, writings of C.S. Lewis that were previously undiscovered that have now been discovered. One of those writings was uh, titled A Sermon, A Christmas Sermon to Pagans. And in this Christmas Sermon to Pagans, uh, C.S. Lewis notes that when we distinguish between those that we call heathens today and those that were formerly called heathens in pre-Christian times, we have to understand that we're talking about very different people. Lewis went on to say in that sermon that when we talk about pre-Christian heathendom, we are talking about something supernatural. There were a people who worshipped deities and gods. Now, these were not real and living deities and gods, but there was a sense that the world had a personal interaction happening about it, and all of the things in the world, all of the injustices, all of the darkness, everything happening in the world was in some way interacting with these supernatural powers. Whereas, Lewis says, in the post-Christian world, 
of, in his day, the 1940s, and now in 2017, we live in this scientific world where people have lost a sense of the supernatural and don't know how to cope with the world, and it's left in a state of gloom and darkness. Lewis writes in that sermon, a universal colorless electrons, which is presently going to run down and annihilate all organic life everywhere and forever, is perhaps a little dreary. Compared with the earth mother and sky father, the wood nymphs and the water nymphs, chase Diana riding the night sky and homely Vesta flickering on the earth. But one can't have everything, and there are always the flicks and the radio. Lewis is saying that what people have done is they have sought hope in electrons and in scientific discoveries and in a materialistic world, and they've thrown off any idea of the supernatural. He goes on to say, uh, in a sense, all that Christianity adds to paganism is the cure. It confirms the old belief that in this universe we are up against a living power. It adds a wonder of which paganism had not distinctly heard that the mighty one has come down to help us, to remove our guilt, and to reconcile us. I thought that that was a profound observation because all of us living in 2017 know that the world is not what it should be. We watch the the news and we see the warfare and the darkness and the anger and the hostility and the outrage and the statements about injustice and all the cries for fixing this world. And yet there's a sense in which man has lost hope in supernatural deliverance. Um, Someone very close to me said to me, You know, it doesn't feel like Christmas this year. And I don't think that it's because it's so hot outside. I think it doesn't feel like Christmas because we are living in a very materialistic, hopeless, dark, and dreary culture. We are living in a world of despondency. We are living in a world of despair. We are living in a world in which everyone is saying, well, fix yourself. Make yourself a better person. Bring yourself out of the darkness. You can do better for yourself. And we've lost a sense that we need a power outside of us, a deliverance outside of us, reconciliation to God from outside of us, and a mighty one to intervene in our lives and to do what only the mighty, almighty, and infinite God can do. And, you know, it's no different today than it was in Isaiah's day. 800 years before the Redeemer came, God's people found themselves in darkness. They found themselves oppressed by foreign powers. They found themselves under the darkness of superstition. They found themselves under the darkness of idolatry. They found themselves abandoned and hopeless and dreary, as it were. And Isaiah comes with a clear word from the living and true God, the covenant Lord, to the people that God had formed for himself. And he comes with both a word of judgment and a word of redemption. It's very interesting. If you have ever found yourself wrestling to understand the old covenant prophets, you can very simply look at everything that is contained in the message of the prophets under those two headings. Judgment, because of rebellion and darkness and sin, and redemption and restoration because of God's grace. That's it. The whole of Isaiah's message is we deserve judgment because of our sin, and we are hopeless and helpless in the darkness of our natural lives, no matter what we believe or no matter what we're engaged in, and yet God has promised that he is going to be gracious and he is going to redeem a people for himself. Now, 
You know the prophecy here so well in verses 6 and 7. Those famous words, for unto us a child is born. You've probably put them on your Christmas cards. And yet you might not know the context of those words. You may not have ever considered where does Isaiah bring those words to bear? Where is this child, this son, whose name is the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the mighty God, the wonderful counselor? Where is this child coming to play in the prophecy of Isaiah, and we're going to see this morning exactly what God is doing as he weaves together the themes of the darkness in which he fi- his people find themselves and the redemption that he promises. As we look at three things, first we're going to consider the promise of blessing, and that is thrown against the darkness in which God's people found themselves. Secondly, the reason for the blessing, and then finally, the source of the blessing, the promise, the reason, and the source. Notice that Isaiah, as he introduces this subject now, turns and he has already pronounced woes on Israel. You know, you don't have to go long into God's word to find that God is uncovering man's natural condition. Isaiah has pronounced six woes in chapter 5, God's impending judgment. And then in chapter 6, when Isaiah is called, he realizes that it's not that God's judgment is so much focused on everything out there. It's that he, too, is an object of that judgment. And Isaiah cries out when he sees that heavenly vision and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And the, the Apostle John tells us that he saw Jesus sitting on the throne, his robe filling the temple of heaven and the angels covering their eyes and their feet and crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the, the post of the temple of heaven shakes and trembling as the the sinless ones can't even look on the, the majestic beauty of the divine being of God himself. And Isaiah, realizing what he is, cries out, woe is me, that seventh woe falls on me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And Isaiah is really showing us the way forward is first to understand that all God's people are under the doom of sin and rebellion and deserve judgment. Isaiah is saying he needs to be undone before he can ever come to fully look into the face of God, as it were. Um, He will go on and he will unfold his prophecy until now. Notice that he says... In chapter 1, verse 9, and there's a turning point here, he says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Uh, God had dealt severely with his people under, um, under the Assyrian invasions, under all of the judgments that he sent on them to show them that he was serious about his covenant promises and covenant curses, and that he said that if a people would not serve him, if they would not fear him, if they would not trust him, they would not be established. They would be oppressed, they would be afflicted just As they were being afflicted for their own rebellion in their souls, they would be put in bondage under foreign powers. And notice that now Isaiah says, there is a promise, though, of blessing. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt to the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, What you have to understand is that Isaiah is speaking in a prophetic perfect. 
This will ultimately not be fulfilled until Jesus comes, 800 years after he speaks this. Israel will know something of deliverance, but they will not know the full realization of the promised blessing that God is indicating here in chapter 9 until Messiah comes. Now, we know that because uh, verses 1 and 2 are cited in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus moves from Nazareth and he uproots, and Matthew says he came to live in Capernaum, in the land of Naphtali, and in the land of Zebulun by the sea. And Matthew will cite this passage and he will say the light had come to the region of the shadow of darkness there in those coastlands. However, Isaiah speaks with such certainty, it's as good as done. Now, that is a massively important thing because so many of us find ourselves going through life, we find ourselves in difficult situations, we find ourselves perplexed, we find ourselves perhaps under the darkness of some particular sin that we're not repenting of. We go to God's word, we read about his promises, we know that there's a redeemer, we read that God has promised deliverance, and yet... For some reason, we feel as though we're not experiencing the deliverance that God has promised. And so subtly, we may allow ourselves to think maybe God is not who he says he is. Maybe his word is not what he says his word is. Maybe his promises are not what he has said they are. And I need something that works. And so then I revert and I become exactly what C.S. Lewis Explains, I become a naturalistic man or woman trying to fix myself, trying to bring myself out of the darkness. And yet notice that Isaiah is speaking with absolute certainty. Notice verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have, that prophetic perfect, they have seen a great light to those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Now, Isaiah is going to do two things. In verses 2 and 3, he's going to tell us that the promise of blessing includes the promise of light and the promise of joy. Now, obviously, Isaiah is not speaking of a natural light. He's not speaking of some light in the sky. He's speaking of spiritual light. He's speaking of God's illuminating presence. He's speaking of God's blessing shining forth into the hearts and the minds of the people of God everywhere when Jesus comes and he wants to explain what it is that he's come to do. He does it by saying that light has come into the world. You know, this is the beautiful thing about the scriptures is that God has tied together what happens at creation with what happens in redemption. You remember that when scripture opens, it says that there's darkness covering the face of the deep and that the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and that the earth was formless and void and then the infinitely all-sufficient God speaks and says, let there be light and light breaks into the darkness. And when the Apostle Paul wants to explain what happens in the souls of men and women when they come to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ and they are brought out of the spiritual darkness in which we find ourselves by nature, the only thing he can is to go back to creation And he says in 2 Corinthians, it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown into our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, so that the only thing that can explain what's happened to a believer is that he or she has become a new creation by the effulgence of God's light. 
I love the way that Wesley captures this in his hymn, And Can It Be? Um, The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Um, God is promising light to break into the darkness of the lives of his people. And then notice, it. secondly, he is promising joy. There is the promised blessing of joy. Israel had not known joy for quite some time. They had not known real heartfelt joy. They had known oppression. They had known affliction. They had known burdens. God is going to actually speak of their experience as a yoke of burden placed on their shoulders. Now, I want to say this this morning. I don't know a lot of you, and I may not know much about what's going on in your life, but I know that you probably lack joy. I know that you probably lack real spirit-wrought joy in your hearts because that is supernatural, that is rare, and that is not something that you can muster up or you can manipulate or you can artificially bring about in your heart. Um, Lewis, in the weight of glory would talk about men and women trying to please themselves with sex and food and drink and 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 they were like children playing with mud cakes in the slums while they were neglecting a vacation at the ocean Um, real joy is god saying i am going to take away the gloom and the doubt and the fear and the anxiety and the burdens and i'm going to give you real joy in your soul And I am going to be your joy. And the joy of the Lord is going to be your strength. Um, Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want the living God to produce real joy in their souls? God is promising by his grace he's going to remove the darkness. And he's going to remove the sorrows and the burdens. Notice verse 3. How is he going to do this? You have multiplied the nation. He is going to include the Gentiles, people like us are going to come to believe. God's going to bring the nations in. He's going to multiply Israel's borders. He's going to expand those borders. Everything he promised to Abraham, he's going to bring about. He's going to, he's going to enlarge his church. He's going to gather a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language, and there's going to be joy, and there's going to be light, and there's going to be gladness. Notice what he says. With joy at the harvest, they are glad when they divide The spoil. Now, you may ask, well, where exactly does this light and this joy come from? How exactly will this come to be? Well, Isaiah answers that. He is essentially saying in the words of John Calvin, even in darkness, yea, in death itself, there is nevertheless good ground of hope for the power of God is sufficient to restore life to his people when they appear to be already dead. Isn't that a marvelous thought? Even when God's people appear to be dead, God's power is such that he gives life where there's death. Where there's spiritual death, he gives spiritual life. Um, Ray Ortland, noting as he reflects on this passage and all the intricacies of it, he says, God came to his people first where they had suffered the most. And from that place, he launched salvation for the world. God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. Um, You know, God doesn't help Israel when Israel has helped themselves out of bondage. God doesn't help his people when they've done well for themselves. God doesn't help his people when they feel like they have 
fixed their lives enough and they've got their lives back on track. God comes in the place where we've made shipwreck of our lives. God comes to a people where they're in absolute despair and despondency, and he says, my power is such that I will bring life out of death, I will bring light out of darkness, I will bring joy out of gloom, I will reverse everything that you have experienced. Now that is, that is enormously great news. Who, who wouldn't want to hear that? The next time you find yourself complaining to your spouse or a friend, remember that. The next time you find yourself complaining about your situation in life or what you're grappling with or what you don't like or what's not going right or what you feel is wrong with you, the next time you feel burdened by sin, remember that God brings light in darkness, joy in gloom, death, life where death is. And notice Isaiah now, secondly, is going to give us a more developed reason for this blessing. Where, what is the reason for this blessing? Notice in verse 4, 5, and 6 that he begins each of these verses with that word for, with the preposition for. Notice verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. Notice verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And then notice verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. What Isaiah is saying here is first that there will be a deliverance. Notice verse 4, for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, You have broken as the day of Midian. Israel had, as it were, an oppressing nation on them, weighing them down. They couldn't move. It was as if two great oppressive hands were holding them down. And there was a rod on their shoulders, a rod of affliction. And Isaiah says that God is going to break that rod. He's going to take that rod off of their shoulders. He's going to set them free. He's going to grant them liberty. He came into this world in the person of Christ to give deliverance to the captives. Um, this is why believers love to hear Jesus say, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Who doesn't want freedom and liberty in their souls? Who doesn't want freedom from bondage and affliction? Who doesn't want deliverance that feels like it's weighing them down like a rod on their back and a weight on their shoulders? And notice... The next thing that he likens it to there, the deliverance, is in the day of Midian. What's that about? Well, if you know your Bibles, you would know that the deliverance at Midian is a reference back to Gideon and what God did through his own powerful arm in the days of Gideon and delivering his people from their oppressors. Remember, Gideon's army was too great and God kept breaking it back and cutting it back and cutting it back till there was Gideon and there were 300 men so that God would get the glory because God would be the one who would break the oppression. God would be the one that gives the deliverance. What Isaiah is saying in this prophecy is, if you want to know deliverance, then you have to know that God and God alone will give it. You will not participate with him in that deliverance. You will not add anything to it. There is nothing you bring to the table for deliverance from the oppression of sin and Satan and death. There is absolutely nothing you can do for deliverance from the bondage of your soul to sin and Satan and death, but God will come. And just as God gave victory to Gideon in that day and to Israel under the oppression of the Midianites by his own outstretched arm and hand, he would give redemption to his people by himself. Um, You know, reflecting on this and what Isaiah will further say about 
the son who will give that deliverance. Calvin says, when we are inwardly tossed by various tempests and when Satan attempts to disturb our consciences, let us remember that Christ is the prince of peace and that it is easy for him quickly to allay all of our uneasy feelings because he came to bring victory and he won the victory on the cross and he broke the bondage for himself and by himself. Notice that the second four that Isaiah gives is related. Isaiah says, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel in the fire. What does that symbolism mean? He's saying warfare will cease. He's saying there will be no more warriors with their warrior attire on. There will be no more fighting. You know, uh, how many people live their lives in fear of the next world war? The next great battle, the next affliction, the, the next conflict. If you don't, it will come. It will come. There will be wars and there will be rumors of wars, Jesus said. And yet Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled by that. You see, Jesus came to bring peace for his people. He came to remove the boot of the trampling warrior. He came to remove the garment of the warrior rolled in blood and he will burn it as fuel for the fire. And then Isaiah brings it to a climax and a crescendo here in verse 6 with that glorious prophecy of the Redeemer. Why is it? How is it? What is the reason for the promised blessing? Notice verse 6, a child is born. Now, this is contrary to everything you might expect. When Lewis speaks of pre-Christian pagans and their hopes, they are envisioning Zeus riding on a mighty war horse with a lightning bolt coming against their oppressing powers. That's how people coped with life. Here God says, I'm going to give you a child. That's completely counterintuitive. What can a child do for you so, so noble in your intellect, so sufficient in yourself and your resources? What can a child bring to you with your bank account and all of your provisions for life? What can a child do for you? When your, your life is falling apart, your marriage is falling apart, your children are rebelling, you've lost your job, whatever it is, a thousand different things, and now you find yourself enslaved in the darkness of your own rebellion, what can a child do for you? And Isaiah says this child is going to bear on his shoulders the government of the world. I think there's a play here. There is a yoke on the shoulders of God's people that God says he's going to break. And in a sense, he says he's going to take that yoke of bondage and he's going to place it on the shoulders of this child. Now, to the best of my knowledge, there's only one thing that was said to be laid on the shoulders of Jesus, and that was a cross. When he went and he bore his cross to Calvary where he was nailed to the tree, and that's where he takes the government on his shoulders. That's where he takes the oppression of his people. That's where he breaks the rod of oppression. That's where he takes the bondage of his people. That's where he takes the gloom and the darkness upon himself. As he hangs on the cross, as the sun is darkened, as the covenant curses are poured out for him, as God pours all his wrath out on this child and this son who was born. And he bears the government. Notice that Isaiah is telling us that this child is the source of our blessing. It's not enough for him to say, a child is going to be born. And you need to listen very carefully here. It's not enough for him to say, 
that, that you should know that a son was coming into the world. Um, he says to us, you see, at the end of the day, Christmas is about you owning Jesus for yourself. Have you ever owned Jesus for yourself? Have you owned him? Have you said, this child, this son, is for me? This, this child is given to me. God the Father has given me his son. You know, only those who have received this child and this son in all of his bloody gore on the cross, in all of the agony he experiences at Calvary, in all that's placed on his shoulders, they and only they know the light and the joy that God has promised. Only they know the deliverance. Only they know the freedom from oppression. Only they know the deliverance from their sin and the forgiveness of sins and the light and the joy of the knowledge of God because they have received the Son. It's not enough. It's not enough for the scriptures to say a child would come, a son would come, but that he would be given to us. That God would hand him to us. There's a beautiful picture, isn't there? In those incarnation birth narratives and infancy narratives of the Lord Jesus where, as it were, the Lord Jesus is being handed off to his people wherever people are running into Mary and Joseph. In a sense, he's being handed into the arms of the shepherds. In a sense, he's being handed into the arms of the magi. He is, in a literal sense, being handed into the arms of Zechariah in the temple. And he's being handed into the arms of the aged Anna, the prophetess, in the temple. They are owning Jesus for themselves. They are taking this child. They are saying, all of our hopes, all of our expectations, everything that Isaiah had prophesied of, we are now experiencing, and we are doing it for ourselves. Um, It may be that this year hasn't felt like Christmas because most people are not owning Jesus for themselves. Um, There is an absolute guarantee to all those who come to the Son. You know, I think that title, Son, is not just saying that he would be born to human parentage. And in chapter 7, we're told that he would be born of the Virgin, that she would conceive, she would bear a son, she would call his name Emmanuel. This is the Son of God. This is the Eternal One. This is God coming into the world and giving himself to his people, the light shining into the darkness. Notice that Isaiah hastens to give us the name of this child, to stir us up and to understand just who this child and this son given to us is. And notice in verse 6 in the latter part, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now this fourfold name, it, it coincides with the four greatest needs that we have. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. You know, we live in a day when more people go to counselors than ever before in the history of the world. More people go to psychologists, counselors, marriage counselors, because their lives are a wreck and they're looking for wisdom because they're living in ignorance. They don't know what to do. How do we make our way forward? What's the next thing that we're supposed to do? I'll go to a counselor. And the Bible says that the child that would be born, would be the wonderful counselor, that he himself would be the wisdom of God, 
that he would come with all the wisdom that you need for every single thing in your life. And he would say, I am going to be your wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I'm going to be the source of all the counsel that you need. And as you abide in my word and you sit at my feet and you listen to me and you look to me, you will become wise in me. And then notice the next thing that Isaiah tells us is that this child's name would be mighty God. What is it that I lack more than anything? I lack power. I lack power. Why can't I change things about myself that I don't like? Why, why aren't others around me changing? You know, that's one of the frustrating things uh, for a pastor to know that you can't change anybody. You're just going and tweak several things about every single person. And you can't do it because the power has to come from outside of us. And this child would be the mighty God. God in all the fullness that makes God God. God with all the infinite power by which he spoke the world into existence. This child would have all that power in himself. And he would say that he is the very power of God to those who believe. That if you would believe on him, he would be the power of God into salvation. And then notice Isaiah tells us that he would meet that third great need in the lives of his people. What are we looking for? We're looking for love. We're looking for compassion. Who doesn't want to be loved? You know, when we show ourselves and our selfishness and how someone didn't talk to us, someone didn't care for us, somebody didn't do this for us, somebody didn't take note of us, we're ultimately saying, I want to be loved. I want to be cared for. I want people to care about me. Now, that's a supremely selfish way of expressing that desire. But here, Isaiah says the child that's going to be born, the son that's going to be given, is going to be the compassionate and the loving everlasting father. He's going to be the one that tenderly bears up his children. We see this in the Gospels, don't we? Jesus is constantly caring for his disciples as a father cares for his children. When he's raised from the dead and, and they're, they're there on the boat and he, is, he realized they've been out all night toiling and they haven't eaten anything and he's standing on the, the seashore and the risen Jesus is making a fire for them and he says, little children, come because you haven't eaten. He cares as a loving father. He provides. He He loves his own who were in the world and he loves them to the end. And then the climax, the great statement of statements, as it were, is that this child, this son is going to give what we need more than anything. And that is peace. You know, if you told me today, you know, I don't care that much about peace. I would know that you're a liar. You know, if a celebrity is asked, what they want more than anything during Christmas, and they don't say world peace, they look terrible. They have to say it. They don't really care, but they have to say it. Um, I have, on those rare occasions, met people whose lives have been so wrecked by sin, their relationships are so rift because of their sin and their selfishness and rebellion that they're at a point where they say, you know, I just don't care anymore. That's not true. Deep down in the deep recesses of our hearts, we know that we don't want to be living in opposition to others. And even deeper down, we don't want to be in living in hostility and opposition with the living God who gives us life and breath and everything. 
And Isaiah, it's very interesting, is going to take this last title of the son. And he's going to stretch this out over the next verse. And he's going to say, you know, the increase of his government and his peace, there's going to be no end. It's just going to keep going. There's going to be an ever-expanding nature to this peace. And it's going to run to the corners of the earth. And it's going to run from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the world. And here Jesus is being shown to be the greater Solomon, whose rule and reign stretched and expanded. Solomon's name means one who gives peace. He, remember, was the wisest son of David. He was a wonderful counselor. He was a mighty king. He was like a father to God's people in Israel. And he was the prince of peace in one sense, but he was not in the ultimate sense. But Isaiah will tell us that there will be no end to the increase of the rule of this child and this son, that God will fulfill his covenant promises to David, and that with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, there's one question that we have to ask when we read this. And we have to say, how how will there be peace? Because we're living in 2017 and there's still not peace. I turn on the news and I can't even stomach watching all of the gloom and darkness and hostility and anger and warfare and strife and enmity. Why would we ever want to watch the news? And, and it seems like there's still not peace. And yet Isaiah, it's as if he pitches us this here in chapter 9, verse 6. This child will be the prince of peace. And he says, if you want to know what that peace really is and how it comes, it's as if we have to wait till chapter 53, the suffering servant, And he says that that one would grow up before the Lord as a root out of tender ground. He would have no form or comeliness. There would be no beauty that when we see him, we would desire him. He would have no form or beauty. And yet he would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be stricken for us. He would be bruised for our iniquities. And Isaiah says the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes, we are healed. You see, Jesus is the Prince of Peace because Jesus makes peace for us by taking all of the judgment, all of the blows, all of the hostility, all of the oppression, all of the gloom, and all of the darkness on himself at the cross. And until you get that, You will never get the light or the joy of Christmas. You will never really understand solid joys and lasting treasures. Now, I don't know about you, but I wanted it to feel like Christmas this year, and it didn't. But I want to know the child who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace, more than I want anything else in this world. 
And if you're a Christian, that's what you want. And if you're not a Christian, that's what you need. You know, Isaiah spoke here in the prophetic perfect, as if it was already done. And we know, living in 2017, that it's been accomplished by what Christ has done in coming into the world. And yet there's a day coming when there will be no more opportunities to know the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. God is holding that out to you this morning, and he's saying, to you I have given a child, to you I have given a son. Take him, own him, know the light, know the joy, know the blessings, know the peace, know the wisdom, know the power, know the love and the mercy that he has established for us in Jesus Christ and that we receive by faith in him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we do pray this morning as we contemplate these great truths that you would give us hearts that embrace your Son, the child that you gave for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Prince of Peace and that your rule and reign know no end. We thank you that the government of God and of this world are upon your shoulders. We thank you that you are the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. We thank you that of your rule and reign, there will be no end to order and establish your kingdom in the throne of David. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would cause each one in this room to feel their need for deliverance and for light and for joy and for all the blessings that are freely given to us in you. Father in heaven, we pray that we would know the Christmas blessings that come through the Christmas sun. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.